and welcome back to Tudor Talk Time. We hope you've had an amazing week. Ooh. And <laughs> new adjective. Um, and this week we're going to be talking about Edward VI's religious policy. Because we're going on kind of that, that, that theme. <laughs> a very religiously based month. Yeah. Anyway, so we're just going to go straight for it. Um, so Edward, let's talk about him personally. His personal religion, he was brought up with a Protestant tutor, Roger Asham. He's very Protestantly influenced throughout his life. Mm-hmm. But he's also aware that when he comes to the throne, well, first of all, he's like nine. He's nine, right? Yeah. Yeah. He's a boy. <laughs> um, so he's probably not that smart, but he is kind of aware that only 10 to 20% of the population would have been reformed. And these people would be concentrated mostly in London, Cambridge, Oxford, and the southeast. So any meddling with religion would be sensitive. He wouldn't be, you know, catering for the masses. He's on the side of the minority here. He also had another tutor called Richard Cox, who was a very Protestant humanist as well. So really coming at it from all angles there with the Protestantism and humanism that's sort of intertwined with it. And that is why... His settlement is mildly Protestant rather than extremely Protestant. It's a very cautious policy because they know what could go wrong. So let's just get into his settlement itself. So in 1547, it starts with the dissolution of the chantries. And this is one of Henry VIII's policies that was just carried on into Edward's reign. The chantries were these churches where you could pay as you pray. And basically it was so you could say masses for the dead and help their souls. Um... They were dissolved primarily under Henry for monetary reasons, for foreign policy, but could also be because um, the Protestantism would deny purgatory. So Protestants don't believe that you can um, say masses for the dead and help their souls because they don't believe in purgatory. I think it is important to say that little nine-year-old Edward himself was not pushing these policies. It was actually his regent, who at the time was the Duke of Somerset. Um, Interesting fella, Protestant fella. Uh, who got that regency through precarious means, but we move on, and this is clearly his uh, agenda. Did he execute his brother at some point? Yes. Anyway, (laughs) in the same 1547, we also get injunctions issued. These were injunctions attacking traditional Catholic features of the church, so stuff like stained glass, images, statues, candles, and also traditional Catholic practices, so like Palm Sunday, Ash Wednesday, which was yesterday yeah and importantly all these more kind of i don't know quote fun things (laughs) in the church appeal to the illiterate population which was the majority of people because that's what they can actually experience with the church the illiterate people can't read the bible and gain salvation through that way but they're liking this stuff so it's not going to be popular with them i think this also shows how we talked about in our bloody the bloodying of mary episode that people really accept catholicism back into their lives and i think this is kind of a reason why that all of the familiarity and the enjoyments that they got out of the church even songs i think were quite stripped back uh they they lost that and so catholicism as long as as well as sort of the religious what's the word theological differences most of your ordinary illiterate peasantry population aren't going to be too fussed about that but the second you start breaking the altars and ruining the beautiful stained glass it's a bit sad you've paid for that church you know yeah and as we said there were 
they used to have competitions about who could build the best church spire. So there was an element of competitiveness between towns um, in how their churches looked. So it's something that you take a bit of pride in. And he's destroying that. Anyway, in 1549, you have the Act of Uniformity. And this is backed up by the new Book of Common Prayer. So this is like the base. This is the stuff that tells you how the church is. It says everyone has to worship the same form of religion. And this is a mild Protestantism. They have a single written out service that everyone had to follow. Everything was in English rather than Latin. Um, the Archbishop is Cramner and he is the one who writes the Book of Common Prayer. He wants people to be able to understand key religious texts. So that's a kind of that strain from Catholicism where the people themselves don't have to engage with any scripture. But with Protestantism, they like you to kind of do your own reading, read outside your religion kind of thing. Um, but they also leave some sections very deliberately vague to try and please both Catholics and Protestants. Bearing in mind, Catholics make up the majority of the population. Um, so transubstantiation, which is always a big argument, was left very vague. That meant normal people could take the bread and the wine at each ch church service. So that can kind of be like, it's reduced in significance because it's every service. And it was said there was a real presence of Christ in the bread and the wine. So Protestants could see this as it's his spirit in the bread and the wine. And Catholics could see this as it's literally the body and bread, body and blood <laughs> of Christ. Um, and it keeps both sides happy. Um, but that happiness is limited because in 1549, mm. we see the Western prayer book rebellion. Um, and... As Laura said, the new prayer book was written in English and this rebellion was in Devon and Cornwall. And I think, interestingly, we've seen a raise of sort of Cornish nationalism recently, but it was quite strong back then as well. And the Cornish people, they didn't want an English prayer book because they didn't speak English. They spoke Cornish and they should not have to have this prayer book. And so it's less for when you see a religiously driven rebellion, you want to think, oh, it's because they hated the protestantism but really it was much more for regional differences but nevertheless there is unease and unhappiness with this change there were also some other underlying clauses obviously the main one was religion but there was a lot of agitation that the gentry families were going to gain out of religious policy so when henry shut all the monasteries the gentry families were buying up that land and also the land from the chantries and to counter that, your ordinary people were really losing out since the disillusion. Um, the monasteries had lots of social roles in the community. They kind of like, they provided charity. They were good if you were sick. And that led to a lot of social discontent. And it kind of widened that gap between who was gaining and who was losing. You also had, there was more kind of general discontent. So there was high inflation, population increase, obviously enclosure always, and then... A lot of unemployment at this time. So the trigger is they turn a gentleman called William Body into a dead body, and he was there to he was there to enforce these religious changes, um, and they didn't want that. They did not want that, so they kill him, and a rebellion starts because of that, and it ends with five thousand Catholics dead, which is quite substantial. I would yeah, say that's, a lot. that's quite a lot of people to to die um you know may they rest in, may William Body also rest in peace 
But I think this does help to put into context some of Elizabeth and Mary and Henry's discontent, that we do see it with Henry. We do see it with Edward as well. And on a large scale, it wasn't like little little boy, little rebellion. It was little boy, big rebellion. <laughs> okay. I don't think those two are like good measurements. Size of boy and size of rebellion. Okay. Um, <laughs> regardless. So that was all under Somerset. Um, and now we have a change in Duke for various reasons, but mostly related to the fact that um, Somerset was really bad with foreign policy and the rebellions. Also due to the fact that he was executed. Dead people. Yeah, dead people can't rule. <laughs> so we have a new duke. We have the Duke of Northum- Northumberland. Um, his religious policies didn't actually come until 1552, and this is only a year before Edward dies. So we can't really properly assess their effectiveness. They didn't have a proper chance to take hold. And so it's all a bit wishy-washy, you know, all Mm -hmm. a bit vague. But there were some more radical religious views in England at this point. Um, It represented more of what Edward and Cramner would have wanted. They were influenced by a lot of um, more radical bishops like Hooper, the Bishop of Gloucester, and Ridley, who was the Bishop of London. And both of these sit in Parliament, so they have that political power. But you also have um, some continental reformers had now moved to England. So people like Martin Bucer and Peter Martyr, who personally knew Martin Luther. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds like a tongue twister. (laughs) It is difficult, but yeah. And they helped to influence that religious change and edge the country towards a more radical settlement because they had that continental reformism. So... Again, so you have the 1552, you have the Treasons Act comes back in. This makes it an offence to deny the royal supremacy or to deny the beliefs of the English church. So basically they're going, you you believe this or you're dead. Then 1552, same year, sorry, we have the second act of uniformity. This is a lot stricter than the first one. It puts offences for the clergy or the laity to if you don't attend church on Sundays. And then you have the 1552 second book of common prayer. Again, this is just explaining the religion. Um, Transubstantiation this time is completely denied. Consubstantiation is adopted. And this basically says that the Last Last Supper is commemorative. And that makes England a Protestant country, pretty much. All remaining Catholic ceremonies are removed, such as festivals on saints' days. It bans stuff like Pope vestments, so priests had to dress normally, um, because there just wasn't that need for special clerical dress anymore. Um, and it restricted church music, so they had to make up hymns and they had to be very serious and from a psalm. And this is a lot more controversial because this is one of the things that, you know, the illiterate people would have really liked, just going and singing and having some fun. And that's taken away, which is a lot more radical. And then this is backed up by the 1553, 42 Articles of Religion. Um, this takes a lot of inspiration from Calvinism and Lutheranism, um, which is kind of that European Protestant strain it but throughout all of this the hierarchy of the church is kept and that's kind of a pattern in of protestantism in this time in england is they will change as much as they want but they won't change the hierarchy of the church because it's so useful to keep for keeping people in line it keeps that structure and people know where they stand and so it's just really helpful to always keep that yeah, because I think it is difficult with a modern mind to not fully comprehend the importance of the church. The church was how you got your information. It was, if you were poor, it was where you went to seek help. 
it was just really the basis of which society was built on. And so to us thinking, oh, it's not that big of a deal, replacing a table, changing a couple of words. But to them, it was, it was the staple of their community was being messed with. And like I said before, you would leave money in your will to make the church. And there'd be people that say, oh, my granny, she, her will from, her money from her will, that, that's where that chalice came from and then you come in and you have some random protestant people william body. william body throwing it out and destroying it you're going to be upset but they did it anyway and also at this time well like this whole time in the past it's <laughs> <laughs> that's a great people are really unhappy <laughs> they're poor there's not much food it's just a pretty terrible life to live actually unless you're like a gentry family Mm. And people are pretty miserable. Let's be real. There's like no healthcare. If you're sick, you're just <laughs> sick. Someone's going to put nettles down your throat, but that's not going to cure you. So, they will have you sleep in chicken's guts. I really recommend, you know, Susanna Lipscomb. I say that as if they yeah, can reply. <laughs> she, if you search on YouTube, Susanna Lipscomb, Tudor Medical Cures or something like that. There is this really great i was gonna call it funny it's not very funny youtube video of her looking in this little medical book that they had in the tudor times because they all had syphilis back then as well um and it was talking about the kids anyway it's really interesting bit off topic but not it really demonstrates this fact not a great time yeah it's a terrible time and that means if you're living in a terrible time you just you've got no other option you're just like i might as well rebel and they know that well, they don't know that it gets better, but they know that people want to rebel and people are angry. So you have to find some sort of way to keep people where they are. And bottom line is the church was the way to do that. And then finally, we have the 1553 injunctions. And this is, again, altars are replaced by communion tables and basically told the clergy to wear normal clothes. And most of these aren't properly carried out because Edward dies. But if you think about it, if he didn't die, we would have been a Protestant country a lot sooner. That's so true. That is... Thanks for that. <laughs> no, but you're so, so right. You're so right with that. Um, because this is the difference with Edward and Mary. Um, compared to, I was just trying to remember if we've actually done Elizabeth's religious policy, but we have. As we said in that episode, she had the time to embed all of her policy. So it wasn't anything revolutionary, but it just... It was there for 60 years, and after 60 years, it's kind of hard to go. Okay, time to change it again. And the thing is, relatively... With what Elizabeth did, it was a huge change yeah. from that Catholicism. And she didn't get that much clap back at it. So you could assume that under Edward, if he'd have had the time, it would have also settled. Yes. And it also would have embedded. Because the people, maybe they weren't actually that fussed about the theology. And it was more about how it looked once you get used to it. Mm-hmm. They're kind of okay with it. And I mean, even at the beginning, when he first brought it in... Like, you have top Catholics, like Stephen Gardner accepted his settlement because it was that moderate. So this is the first one. It was moderate. Um, But then you had more hardcore Protestants, of course, like Latimer, Shaxton, Ridley, Hooper. They were a lot more disappointed by it. They wanted more reform. Um, But also, which we always have to remember at this time, is that Edward is putting these religious changes through Parliament, which increases the power and scope of Parliament and means that any other religious change has to be undone parliamentarily legally no governmentally legislatively legislatively (laughs) all of the above um 
But I mean, what was the impact of religious change on ordinary people? We know that under Mary, most people were very, very happy to re-adopt Catholicism. Um, this suggests that people weren't really that connected to Edward's religious change, but I would put that down to just lack of time, lack of embeddation. Um, don't wince. <laughs> People were also, well, a man called Christopher Haig did, did a lot of research and he found that people were much less likely to leave money to the church in their wills. Um, this kind of has three different explanations to it. So it could be that they didn't like the church. It could be that they didn't believe in purgatory, so they didn't need to pay for their prayers, which would be um, Protestant. Or it could be that they were scared of corruption in the church and they didn't want royal authority to take their money. Um, don't really know which, but I think... It depends. Being hard to know which. It's hard enough to know what people did, let alone what they were thinking. I mean, it's probably a combination of all three on different people's parts. And then, as we've said his name a couple of times, but Bishop Hooper, who was very radical, he whinged that the pace of reform was too slow. He said this in 1550 because the people were uncooperative. So there is some, there's definitely some kind of hesitance to adopt full Protestantism. Again, really just because it's been, what, like a year <laughs> can, we, can we be a bit realistic yeah okay you've worshipped this for your whole life but within a year you need to change everything i mean yeah. just like take it into consideration um overall i think if edward had a bit more time then yeah. maybe it would have been more for simple so maybe people would have done a bit more rebelling hard to know counterfactual i don't think his religious policy would have embedded properly until he would have come of age i, I think people had a sense of dislike towards it because it was Somerset and Northumberland pushing it and not a divinely appointed monarch. Absolutely. And when Elizabeth, she just, she comes in, she has that legitimacy. She has a, she has like a Protestant settlement, but she's the monarch and she's the head of the church. And so people will accept that more, in my opinion, I think. I agree. I also think <clears throat> we know nothing about Ed. Well, we don't know nothing, but we just assume that Edward liked all of this but it could have changed when he came of age um he was also a strange boy so we really know nothing about what he would have been like as a monarch but it was a distressing time thank you for listening go and follow us on social media thank you all so much for listening we hope you have another amazing week mm -hmm. and we'll see you next week on cheetah talk time